0: Hello and welcome. I'm Julie Davis, president of City Club. Happy spring, everyone. It's been a beautiful week. I hope you've gotten the chance to enjoy it. Before we begin, we want to acknowledge that the land we are on is native land and was stolen from people who lived here for thousands of years. Here in the Portland region, this land is the territory of the Multnomah, Catlamet, and Clackamas. The Tualatin, Kalapuya, and Malala. The Wasco, Cowlitz, and many other indigenous people who've known the power and beauty of the Columbia and Willamette rivers. Lived here, raised their families, and built communities and traditions that live on. Together, we recognize their unbreakable connection to this land and we honor the resilience of their ancestors and the hope of future generations. If you've followed the economic news in Oregon and the rest of the country over the past year, you've seen a financial sector that thrives while inequality continues to grow. More than two million women left the workforce in 2020. People of color lost work at a higher rate than white workers, Those who did keep their jobs were more likely to be exposed to COVID at work and saw higher infection rates in their communities. Many people in local and state government are working on policies to address inequalities that were amplified by the pandemic. The Oregon State Treasurer doesn't make policy, but it does manage a whole lot of money which is why we thought it would be interesting to ask Treasurer Tobias Reed how his office and the state as a whole can focus resources and energy to make sure that all Oregonians benefit from our growing economy. Today, we're pleased to welcome Tobias Reed, Oregon's 29th State Treasurer. Treasurer Reed has worked in the U.S. Treasury and as a liaison between designers, engineers, and manufacturing units for Nike, Inc. In 2006, he was elected to the Oregon House of Representatives, where he served for a decade and was elected Speaker pro tempore. As House Treasurer, Reed is a constitutional officer and the state's navigator for sound and responsible financial policy. The treasurer protects the state's credit rating, sits on Oregon Investment Council and the state land board, and oversees public investing, banking, bonding, and financial empowerment programs. Oregon State Treasurer's investment portfolio is currently worth about $106 billion. Joining Treasurer Reed is Monica Enden. The founder and CEO of The Proved, a cloud-based platform that helps legal teams navigate electronic discovery with minimal risk and cost. Before Foundings Approved, Monica worked at Intel and IBM. Before I turn the screen over, I want to share a few thank yous. First, thank you to our seasoned sponsors, Chevron, The Standard, and Wells Fargo for making this series possible. I also want to thank Kaiser Permanetti and Tonkin Torp and our partners at Pamplin Media, X-Ray FM, and Merge Design. If you're ever unable to watch our forums, you can listen in via X-Ray's stations, including 91.1 FM and 107.1 FM. I'd also like to thank Caitlin Baggett Davis for helping to bring this conversation together. Now it is my pleasure to turn the screen over to Monica.
1: Thank you so much, Julie and City Club. Uh, I am so excited to be here uh, talking about such an important topic with Treasure Reed. Treasure Reed, I know you spend many of your waking moments thinking about the state of our economy and how Oregon can can thrive. Um, so I know we have a lot to cover, but I want to just jump right in, and I want to start with maybe some some good news. Um, in recent weeks, Oregon's economic forecast has improved faster than many observers thought it would. Revenues coming into the state are stronger than 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 was feared as a result of the pandemic response. Unemployment in many sectors has improved. Do you think we've learned something about the resilience of the Oregon economy? And what do you think that looks like from your perspective?
2: Well, I do, it's a good question. Before I answer it, let me first say thanks to City Club, uh, thanks to Julian, thanks to you, Monica, for, uh, for, for being part of this conversation. Um, I can't imagine anybody who's uh, who's better situated both because uh, you're a member of the Investment Council, so you know this stuff very, very well. And also, uh, I want to say congratulations on the award you've just been uh, recognized with by the Technology Association of Oregon too, the Sam Blackman Award. So uh, I'm very glad you're here for, for all kinds of reasons. I do think we've learned some things uh, about the economy. and Largely, it's the fact that we're resilient, uh, both as an as economy uh, and as people and we can start to see that in a, in a variety of different ways these days. I think my, maybe the best way to um, to summarize it is to paraphrase the words that Mark McMullen used uh, not too long ago. He's the state economist, and when he was describing the situation to the legislature, he likened it to coming out of a, of a very dark winter. And of course, that's kind of literally true, um, but it's also figuratively true. And it's, I think, a result of the combination of a, a very strong and accelerating response to the pandemic in terms of vaccines uh, and strong response on a fiscal level from the federal government. So that combination uh, is resulting in a a cycle in the beginning of a cycle that's not really like anything we've seen before. You can see that in terms of numbers too with really strong uh, projections. You don't have to know too much about economics to know that we don't see these numbers very often. Um, I'm looking now to make sure I get these right. Goldman Sachs, projects GDP growth of 6% for 2021, Morgan Stanley 8%. Those are big, big numbers. And they, they play out in, in other places as well. Um, our unemployment in Oregon is not as low as it was um, a year ago, but it's coming down. It's uh, 6.1% in, in February versus 3.3 in February 2020, but it's headed the right direction. And you see it play out in a lot of the service sectors as well as manufacturing, which of course is a, a really important thing for, for Oregon's economy. That culminates in a budget picture for the state that is much better than it was when we started this year. At the beginning, the legislators and the governor were looking at some potentially really painful cuts, uh, but those improved projections and federal support mean we're not probably gonna have to make the same kind of cuts. And in fact, we're in a position to be able to say what sort of investments we wanna make to put us on a much stronger path Um, the final thing i suppose to say is is how this plays out inside treasury and and you know this is a member of the investment council Um, we have if if someone had told me you know this time a year ago um, you could have a positive number for returns to the portfolio i probably would have said yes without knowing what that positive number was makes me even more happy to be able to say that we beat our assumed uh, rate of earnings uh, for 2020. And that matters to everybody, because when we can generate a dollar of investment earnings, it's a dollar that doesn't have to come from somewhere else in the budget. And as an investor, we're also a little bit different, because we have to generate returns, of course. But at the same time, we have to generate cash to be able to pay the obligations to retirees. And that matters to the economy, because these are the dollars that, that retired teachers and firefighters use to pay their rent and buy groceries and uh, meet their utility bills. It's billions of dollars that uh, that circulates through the economy. So uh, at Treasury, things uh, are also looking good. It's a credit to the people who, who work there, as you well know. And I guess the bottom line to your very good question is strong, resilient, uh, but obviously a lot of a lot of work yet to do.
1: Absolutely. I think that's very well said. But you know Julie talked about this in her intro and I've heard you talk about your concerns about what's not captured in that portrait that you just laid out. Um, do you want to say more about the concerns around not everything being rosy?
2: Yeah, you, you took the words out of my mouth and as I was hearing Julie's introduction, I thought she said it really well too because you don't have to look very far past those top line numbers uh, to see some some real holes. Uh, as it plays out for, for people in their, in their ordinary lives. And I, I don't, I, what I want to say here runs the risk of, of throwing a lot of numbers out, but, but they're all in, a, in a, a specific direction and I think they reveal different things. Let's start with this one. The fact that, is that there are 300,000 people in Oregon, adults who report uh, having not enough to eat on a regular basis. Um, 90,000 of them adults with kids in their household. That's, that's not too far off at 10% of our population. That's not a good indication. There are 124,000 renters in Oregon who are behind on their rent. That's 12% of all renters, and it's double what it was before the pandemic. Almost a third of households in Oregon report having some trouble making their, their regular expenses. And of course, as, as Julie well said, um, the communities of color in Oregon were disproportionately affected by this experience, both in terms of their likelihood to contract the virus and to be economically affected by the public health measures that were necessary uh, as we go into it. So I think all of this really reveals and underscores the fact that the, the family economy is not very well connected with those broader uh, indicators that I've referred to before. We still gotta pay attention to them, but recognize that, that they are different. Or to put it another way, uh, as some others have said, the stock market is not the economy. Um, what I guess, if, if I'm searching for something positive to say about the, the pandemic and the wildfires, and that, that's sort of a, a foolish errand, I suppose, but on one hand, the one thing that they did do really well is reveal the vulnerabilities of our economy and the fact that despite living in in one state, there's not just one economy, there are lots of them, and they're not all affected um, in the same way. That was true before the pandemic too. Remember, probably many people do remember that uh, survey from a few years ago that said that 40% of American families couldn't meet a $400 unexpected expense. Um, that's a pretty scary thing. And I don't think that that's likely gotten a lot better in the experience that we've had. Um, but at the same time, and this is, you know, the economist, the, the, the two-handed economist is always saying, on the other hand, um, those at the upper end did pretty well. Um, you, can see the, the, you can see that very visibly, probably within a few minutes, if you stand on any street corner and look around for a minute, because there's probably going to be an Amazon truck driving by. Um, and that's It's a really stark uh, point. I guess, here's the stat, if you don't remember any other ones that I I want people to remember. Total personal income in Oregon is up now relative to before the pandemic. And here's the amazing part. That is true despite the fact that we have 160,000 fewer jobs in Oregon. So I can't think of a a more stark illustration of how different the experience is for someone at the top of the economic ladder than uh, someone at the bottom. Higher personal income in total, but 160,000 fewer jobs. Another important number, the the number of uh, long-term unemployed in Oregon has ballooned. This is defined as people who've been looking for work for more than six months. It was 13,000, it's now 60,000. So obviously, not trying to drown people in numbers here, but we've got a lot of work to do.
1: Absolutely. And I know that one of the things you've talked about is one of the biggest things that we can do to help both small businesses and employees is to as well as students is to quickly get children back into in-person learning for K through 12. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, it's at the center of everything and and I think I have to acknowledge, you know, the the way I think about it is affected in part by being a parent. We have two young kids at home, and we talk to other parents, as I think everyone does, and I, I don't know very many people that are having you know, a perfect experience uh, in this remote learning environment. There are, there are pieces that are good and certainly things we need to learn from it, um, but it's not ideal uh, for, for the state. And then I think about it as, as a treasurer um, in the short term and, and in the long run. In the short term, this is having really immediate impacts for, for individuals, for families, and for businesses. We talk to businesses ar- around the state, no matter where it is, in Portland or Southern Oregon or the East, what they almost always point to is their number one challenge uh, is connected with uh, the shuttering of schools. Look at it from the perspective of the, of the individual. Even if you're lucky enough to have a job where you can ostensibly do it from home, that's pretty hard to do while managing involvement of, of remote learning. and layer on top of that, that um, the, that responsibility for remote learning has fallen disproportionately on women. And a lot of women have made the choice that they can't do both of those things. Julie made the point early on, and, and I'm glad she did, that before a, a recent and, and really needed uptick, we saw a multi-decade low in terms of the rate of women's participation uh, in the labor market. That's That's not good. It's not good for their for their family finances right now, it's not good for their prospects um, for their careers going forward, and we cannot uh, we can't forget that. It also has impacts in the in the medium and long term in terms of what we're seeing for for the education loss uh, of, of families. Um, our ability to to build and, and maintain a competitive workforce um, is is at risk, and you can see that playing out beginning to play out in terms of numbers as well. The number of Chronically absent students in Portland schools is up to 22%. That was already an issue before the pandemic, and it's only getting worse. Thinking about the the drop-off that we normally see over the summer, it's likely to be worse this year because of the um, less optimal experience throughout the year. Um, In Salem-Kaiser last fall, half of high school students were on track to fail at least one, one class. And community colleges, a really critical role um, that they play to help people gain the skills that are needed to, to, to obtain and maintain uh, a livable wage job. Uh, enrollment there is down 25%, probably connected to people having to, to abandon or at least postpone their educational aspirations to deal with the immediate economic circumstances. So, What I hear from from school leaders is also really one, that they're just starting to get the the arms around these these changes and and challenges. And and we cannot afford, if we agree on nothing else, I hope we all agree on this, we can't afford to repeat the experience of these last 12 months and this this academic experience. It is gonna take a serious effort um, to be ready for a fall return uh, to schools that looks as as smooth and as normal as possible. I'm encouraged. By the steps that the legislature and the governor have taken to um, direct 250 million dollars to summer learning opportunities, but I want to make sure that's connected and integrated into a, a broader plan, uh, so that we're not missing that, the chance to uh, to keep those uh, to keep those integrated and to to build momentum uh, for for a fall that is is approaching a lot more rapidly than uh, than we might otherwise expect.
1: Yeah, you know. Oregon has done a really good job actually managing the pandemic response, I think, but it's come at, it's come at a pretty high cost. Um, and so, okay. So you've kind of laid out the situation. We've talked about the problems. We've talked about the inequality and the two economies or the multiple economies, I guess you say that affect different people in different ways. Um, so You started to kind of talk about solutions, but I guess we're all wondering what's to be done. Um, You've outlined all of the challenges, but what do you as treasurer, what can you or what can the state do? What does state leadership, what should we be thinking about in terms of the, the state taking the lead statewide? I keep
2: trying to beat the drum as as the state's chief investment officer on our need for a, a comprehensive plan about how we're going to grow this economy uh, in a way that, that becomes more equitable and sustainable, uh, more more resilient. Um, a growing economy helps us solve a lot of other challenges. And I, I think in this case, uh, it starts with doing everything we possibly can to prepare for a full and safe reopening of, of schools. Um, we have, we have the capacity to do that with the uh, fast and, and accelerating distribution of vaccines, with support from the federal government. There's no reason that we, we can't uh, achieve that, but we've got to be intentional about it. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had the chance to go visit the Roseburg School District, and I came home from that uh, simultaneously encouraged uh, and worried. Uh, Roseburg is one of the, the first uh, kind of Uh, small, large districts, in the sense that they're big enough to to confront a lot of the same challenges that larger districts uh, did, to to be back and fully open. And they were pretty frank with us about the the challenges that they encountered as as they worked through that to get there. But they also demonstrated that it's possible. So that's the encouraging part. The worried part is that um, they did have to go through that. And they are asking desperately, uh, pleading frankly, for clear guidance from the state now so that they can be ready and can be um, in, a, in a spot to to have a smooth reopening uh, in the fall. I think we owe that to our, our teachers and our, and our kids. The second thing I think that we've seen over the last year is the need to have modern and resilient infrastructure. Um, you think about all the ways that that's played out, um, all the wildfire, the droughts, the storms, the ways that, that really visible implications of, of a changing climate are Playing out, it's connected to, to the remote learning experience too. Because if, if we if we thought before that that broadband uh, was a was a luxury, I don't I think we're laboring under that uh, illusion now. It's essential for education, for for uh, emergency, for uh, economic development, for all of these things. And I'm, I'm excited that um, there's a hundred million dollars in the governor's recommended budget to make progress on that. We need to pass that, and we need to keep going. It's just one example though, of the physical infrastructure. Imagine what a, a a more electrified transportation system would do for us. Um, a much improved ability to, to efficiently and effectively get people and things where they need to go uh, at much less vulnerability to a supply chain that's subject to the kind of disruptions we've seen. We need more housing, particularly the uh, affordable Middle uh, type housing that was especially rocked by the fires um, last fall. And the policies that we've done, uh, that we've begun in this regard, are, are good, but they now need to be backed up with, with financial investments as well. Uh, the last thing I'd say on this is, is as much as physical infrastructure matters, and it does, we can't forget human capital um, and investing in, in, in Oregonians to make sure that they have skill uh, and the opportunities they need is, is important. Talent is distributed equally, uh, but opportunity isn't. And we've got to be relentless in making sure that we're bridging that gap as much as possible. Um, making sure that, that we are investing in small businesses, particularly those owned by women and people of color, is not only the right thing to do, it's smart. That's where the, the products and services that meet real needs are gonna be created. It's where new jobs are gonna be are gonna be found. Uh, and all of these elements between schools, between investments in, in infrastructure and in people have to be the, the pillars of our strategy going forward.
1: That was well said. You know, as we mm-hmm. continue our conversation with the treasurer, I want to remind everybody that it's not too late to ask a question. Uh, you can tweet at the city club using the hashtag State of the Possible hashtag State of the Possible. Or you can email your questions to questions at pbxcityclub.org. All right. So you've talked a lot about K-12 and higher education, but what are the right investments do we make to address the economic inequalities, the racial justice issues that we face as a society?
2: Well, we've got, I think, to recognize that uh, people are in different circumstances. we talked about different economies in Oregon and, and people need different things according to those circumstances. But ultimately we've got to do what we can to make sure that people have those those skills uh, and have those opportunities in front of them so they can, they can make the most of their of their talents and, and pursue their ambitions. And I want to give the, the governor some credit here the the 10-point plan that she recently has a lot of really wise investments in it, um, particularly I think the emphasis on on community colleges technical training to make sure that people who might otherwise have been um, uh, detoured a little bit from, from because of the pandemic because of the fires because the things have access to those tools um, community colleges trade schools uh, have a really important role to play in giving people access uh, to those opportunities um, her plan calls for that um, Apprenticeships are another really important opportunity. And our labor commissioner, Val Hoyle, is doing really important work to make sure that they are uh, open in new places and to new people. Um, and it's an it's especially exciting way about career advancement because uh, people are able to um, earn and learn at the same time, uh, avoiding the, the student debt that a lot of people are, are uncomfortable with, understandably. Um, also, think as we talked about before, the the emphasis on making sure that capital is available um, to, to small and growing businesses, particularly those um, that have a have a unique perspective. Um, we we've not we, the, the last year has also um, revealed our deficiency in making sure that women and people of color who are entrepreneurs um, they haven't had access to the capital and support that they need in the past. And we've got to get uh, we've got to get a lot better about that. Um, the last thing I think about is is the recommendations that were contained in the the report of the Wildfire Economic Recovery Council. The governor asked um, Commissioner Hoyle and I to, to chair that, that um, with a specific uh, date around how to respond to wildfires. And so we did, and the, the content are, are relevant, of course, uh, for wildfires, but they're they're beyond that. Uh, we talked a lot about broadband, as we've mentioned before, and about basic kinds of, of infrastructure, um, water and, and sewer. And there are a lot of places in the state related to to wildfires, but beyond that too, that are struggling with that sort of basic infrastructure. When you get that right, it opens up all kinds of other possibilities. So those are, I think those are the other elements that really need to happen. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, the recommendations to the council and some of these others are in front of the legislature. Uh, it's a bit different than the sessions I was privileged to, to serve in since people are operating in, in remote perspectives, but that also can serve to focus the discussion around the things that can really make a difference. And I think there's reason to be hopeful about uh, momentum towards making investments and, and taking advantage of the unique circumstance uh, and the resources that we started uh, started our conversation with today.
1: All right. Well, I want to talk about the business climate in Oregon because it's something that gets talked about quite a bit actually. Um and I spend a lot of time with other business leaders thinking about how do we grow good jobs here in Oregon? Um do you have any advice or thoughts about how the business climate in Oregon is going and how you might change that if, if you were able to wave a magic wand?
2: Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question. I think so much of this um, relates to how we talk about it. And, and that's inherent in, in the way you asked the question. Um, we have a lot of good things happening in Oregon, despite our current challenges. And I'm not suggesting that we ignore the challenges, but I do think we could give a little more attention, a little more credit to the things that are in our favor and talk about them as well. Tone at the top really matters here. And business leaders, political leaders should not you know buy into the um the, the narrative that everything is terrible um we got challenges no doubt but there's also a lot of advantages and a lot of people that i talk to around the country i'm sure for you as well who would love to be in oregon who would love to have the advantages that if we can get the basics right start to turn the terms of how we feel about things, how we think about the future, the confidence and optimism that is part of who we are as Oregonians can really begin to take over, uh, and we can start to think about possibilities uh, more than we can think about challenges.
1: Yeah, I love the state. I, I am so grateful and thankful that I was able to grow my business here, and I did it with so much of a supportive ecosystem of people and resources. So I absolutely think there's a lot of positives here, but I do want to talk about something I found recently disappointing. Um, the CEO of, the new CEO of Intel, Pat Singer, just recently announced some big new investments in fabs and he, uh, manufacturing facilities, and he announced that they would be going to Arizona. And I have to share that when I heard that, I was a bit disappointed that it was Arizona and not Oregon, because I know that there's so much about Oregon that would make it, a perfect place for Intel to grow their investment in manufacturing. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? I, th-
2: I think we should be worried. Um, I think if Intel is ever to leave Oregon, and I hope they don't, it's not going to happen in one big announcement. It's going to happen drip by drip with a, with a decreased commitment to the to the innovation elements that, that happen here. Uh, so I'm worried about that. I, I don't know certainly all the factors that went into that decision, but I think anytime a state sees a, a prominent, let alone you know top private sector employer as Intel is for Oregon, start to make more of an emphasis on, on their expansion activities elsewhere, it should be cause for concern. We can't take these things for granted. We're we're lucky in a lot of ways. Lucky's not quite the right word because because it's often a result of, of a deliberate strategy. Um, but, but we can't take for granted that everybody just wants to be in Oregon. Um, that's, that's going to be the result of deliberate effort, deliberate relationships, deliberate um, uh, care uh, of an environment that, that allows uh, business leaders to feel confident that this is the place they want to invest and grow their businesses. Uh, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're investing uh, in Oregon and, and growing's approved. Uh, and I'm hopeful that, that. Intel and others will will begin and continue to see Oregon as a place that they want to grow. But we can't take it for granted.
1: No, absolutely. I think there's so much, so many great things that Oregon has to offer. Um, so I just know there's so much to offer. So we just have to, as you said, be really intentional and very deliberate about it and have those conversations and relationships. Relationships are critically important. Um, yes. And I know I know you believe that. Um, all right so I think it might be time to take a few audience questions Um, so give me just a second while I look and find the audience questions Um, okay we have one here when you think about Oregon and and this is good because I think this long-term thinking is very important but when you think about Oregon in 20 or 30 years what possibilities are you most excited about Uh, what bolder key things do you think we should be reaching for?
2: That is a great question, and and frankly, it's one of the best things I think about the, the job that I'm privileged to have as treasurer because so many aspects of, of policy, even, even biology as humans, is, is short-term focused, and it crowds out the long run. So um, I do think we spend a lot of time Talking about the things we're trying to avoid, and, and probably not enough thinking about the, the place that um, that we want to build. So it's a it's a really nice question, and, and for me, um, I think it's it's mostly about how do we set up a, a society that that and a state that allows people to live up to their full potential, that that where it it doesn't matter um, where you were born or the circumstances that that uh, attended your your entry into the world. Um, but you're going to have the support. You're going to have a, a world-class education system that's going to allow you to explore the things that, that fire your passions. That, that will um, give you the hard experiences, but acknowledge and recognize that there are lessons to be learned outside of the classroom. Uh, at the at the upper grades, that's maybe in a in a uh, uh, an internship setting. Maybe at the younger grades, it's out in a in a forest or along a stream. Um, a place where um, where those entrepreneurial spirits are supported too, where we have an environment that is in a, in a good balance with the economy, uh, a transportation system that's not reliant on on an antiquated system, um, where where people are able to make cho- choice. Um, I could go on and on for this, but I think the the state has a role, um, not not to necessarily construct all the details of that, but to be focused on creating the conditions where. Talented entrepreneurs uh, and public-private partnerships uh, can figure these things out. The state can set can set the clear articulation of the goals, um, the floor, and allow the, the private sector to figure out how to achieve it and, and continue to to raise those uh, those bars. When people have confidence in that sort of direction, when they're um, you know when they, they feel like there is a plan and there's a direction, I think the, um, the possibilities for us are are pretty close to limitless.
1: Well, I agree. Okay, a burning question from the audience. Uh, Why is there an ax over your head? And, (laughs) And what can you tell us about your home office and how you and your family have made it through this difficult year?
2: Well, I came, uh, you know, when we uh, were in the the green room, uh, uh, Caitlin Baggett-Davis talked about uh, how the only circumstance we might want to turn off our camera was if a a naked four-year-old was was running through the shot. Um, I don't have a four-year-old at home, but I I was a little worried about uh, being disrespectful to the audience, so I came down and, and borrowed an office. Um, and this, this office is occupied by somebody who's really committed to the history of Oregon, so uh, the, the role of timber and that sort of stuff. So there's an axe and a saw behind me, uh, some other kind of historical uh, implements of, uh, of, of timber harvesting. Um, ordinarily, when I'm at home, I, I'm uh, pictured in something I refer to as the clothis, which is my desk in a closet in the basement. Um, and and mostly our kids are, are pretty good uh, about respecting that. Um, my wife is a, is a star at Nike, as you know, and she has the uh, uh, the guest room upstairs. so she takes a little bit more of the, the burden because I think it's easier for kids to remember they can run in there than to come all the way down to the basement. They have an amazing ability, our kids, sixth grade and second grade. Um, and I don't know if other parents feel this way too. It's not that often that Heidi and I both have an important Zoom meeting at the same time, but somehow Annika and Ellis can tell when that is. It only happens, you know, maybe every three weeks or four weeks or something, and that is the time they decide to have a full-on meltdown or physical altercation, and one of us has to then <laughs> intervene. Uh, and it's always kind of endearing when it happens at someone else's house, but it, when it's your house, it, uh, it can be pretty maddening. So uh, I think we're all looking forward to- you know, something approaching whatever new normal looks like. I was sharing with you, Monica, earlier too that uh, this last week was a big deal at our house for the first time. We were out on soccer fields, masked up, of course, but um, with soccer and baseball, and just listening to kids being able to interact and run and yell. Um, it was a huge thing. So lots of uh, lots of things to look forward to.
1: Well, I've been on you and. We- on the Zoom calls, sometimes with you, um, like in the Oregon Investment Council, and I just appreciate you normalizing how the the juggle. That I'm very lucky. My kids are older and out of out of the house for this pandemic. Um, but I think you've really done a good job of normalizing how two rockstar professionals have to deal with juggling uh, ch- children and work and all of the commitments that you have, um, I don't think it's too unfamiliar uh, for most people.
2: Heidi gets way more credit than I do. Uh, I could not possibly uh, approach anything <laughs> functional without her.
1: Well, I know you both support each other. So. Thanks. Um, okay. So, you said, we all appreciate that you said this is coming from the audience. Um, that we need to get better at investments in women and minority-owned investments. And actually, I know the answer to this question. Um, we need to get better at investments for my, women and minority-owned businesses and entrepreneurship. But what are you doing about it?
2: We're doing a number of things. Um, I I think one of the most common questions that any treasurer gets is a version of the one that was just asked, why aren't you investing more in X? Um, so, The Oregon Growth Board plays an important role that can take on a really specific mission, as it does, to invest in Oregon economic um, development in in new businesses in Oregon. And I sit on that board, as as you once did, Monica, and that's really important. In the bigger portion of our portfolio, um, and again, it feels funny to be (laughs) almost speaking to you, Monica, because you know all this stuff, but uh, more aimed to to the questioner, our, our specific mandate is to generate returns for beneficiaries. The good news is that in almost every case, if you think about it in a long enough time frame and comprehensively enough, concerns like these turn out to be accretive or, or they added, add to our ability to generate returns. So we are, um, I think we're among the national leaders in improving our capacity to integrate these factors into our investment decision-making process. Um, There's a a term that kind of encompasses all of these things, ESG, environmental, social, and governance factors. Um, We're early days in this, in the the big world, to understand how to make those uh, factors quantifiable and relevant across timeframes and across industries. Um, but I'm very proud of the fact that, that I hired the first investment officer in the Treasury whose specific focus is on these ESG factors. Um, we're not content to just take some off-the-shelf product um, that might be subject to someone's um, uh, kind of manipulation. We're, we're doing the hard work of figuring out how we're going to integrate it to, to our liking and it is frustrating for me because I'd like to go a lot faster on this But I think the most important part for this is to recognize that I I don't get to be treasurer more than four years uh, from now. Um, There's a term limit. So I want to build something in this environment that's going to last a lot longer than me and to make sure that we're integrating those things. Because frankly, I don't think we're doing our job as fiduciaries if we're not including those those factors in our investment-making decisions.
1: Absolutely. Okay. well, actually, related to that, um, one of the biggest drivers, we talked about this in the beginning, Julie even talked about it, one of the biggest drivers of increasing economic inequality seems to be the financial markets. Um, you're not a policymaker in your role as treasurer, but you do have a front row seat to both govern, government and financial markets. In your view, what financial policies could, we, could help balance the inequality that we're seeing?
2: It's... A- that's an insightful question. I think um, while it's right that I'm not a policymaker in the sense that I was when I was a legislator, um, I do think we have a pretty unique um, role to play as a major investor, and that is um, with the ability to vote our shares. Uh, we went through a pretty interesting process in the last couple of years, kind of changing the the guidelines by which we do that. Um, and I think the biggest thing that, that's a specific response to that question is by emphasizing the long run. There are, there are a lot of investors who have a specific time timeframe uh, or an investment horizon based on what they're trying to do. We occupy a pretty unique position because, um, because we're a large investor, because we own the economy, we're known as a universal owner, so we own some of everything. Uh, and because our obligations go out so far into the future, um, it's not only our opportunity, but our obligation to think in those terms. Um, there was a really interesting, Larry Fink of BlackRock has this tradition of, of sending an annual letter, which came out this this year. And he does a nice job, I think, each year of, of raising some of these issues that he sees out there on the horizon. Um, not that we have to agree with everything he says, I do agree with some of it. Um, but that's where, as a, as a large um, and, and universal owner, we can vote our shares and say to the, um, to the leadership of these companies um, that we want you to be paying attention to how you're positioned uh, relative to, to climate disruption, for example. We want to make sure that your leadership and your workforce reflect the population. If you're not doing that, you're not paying attention. These are all examples, I think, of thinking about the long run and not being affected just by next quarter's uh, returns. So we, we pay attention, we, you know, we interact with with the legislation with Congress on specific policy uh, pieces as well. But as an investor, as those uh, as a, as an entity that votes our shares, uh, we have a direct role as well.
1: Absolutely. Okay, well, here's a good question that came in: a complaint from rural counties is Portland gets everything. Um, isn't tax revenue from Portland Multnomah County shared with other counties? And if so, is there a percentage or a a way to estimate how much Portland contributes to other areas of the state?
2: It is a knowable number. Um, Unfortunately, I don't have it off the top of my head, but in general, yes. Um, If you think about the the typical trio of, of tax revenues, Uh, for for an ordinary state, you have income tax, you have property tax, and you have sales tax. We don't have a general sales tax in Oregon. There there are specific um, examples of of sales taxes around uh, specific products or specific uh, transactions uh, in some cases, but generally that's off the table. Property tax is collected at the county level and, and generally administered at the county level, and then there's income tax and the state definitely has a variety of of responsibilities around you know prior to measure five in, in 1990 about two-thirds of school funding came from locally assessed property taxes and the, the balance came from the state the passage of measure five and then measure 50 that flipped so about two-thirds of school funding now comes from the state to be supplemented by locally assessed property taxes so um those are you we could calculate that number and be happy to, to follow up with somebody if they want, want to um, get back to me. Um, but the larger question, I think, really speaks to, to how we go about a process that gives people confidence that, that their voice is being heard. Um, sometimes I get into a conversation where people say some version of, you know, uh, my taxes are too high. And I think that's often the less productive place to start a conversation, because if you ask that question, most people are going to answer too high. I think what's more useful is often to say, well, what kind of a community or state do you want to live in? What sort of programs and services does, do you think that requires? How do, how do we operate and, and design those those most effectively? And then get to the question of how how we share their cost." Um, I think people are not, I, I don't know too many people who are happy to pay their taxes, but I know more people who are willing to pay their taxes when they feel confident about how those dollars are managed and the value that they're getting uh, for those taxes. So I think to the questioner, you're right to, to give voice to that um, that opinion that, that comes from uh, parts of the state. It's not unique to, to rural Oregon, by the way, but there's opportunity for us um, to, to try to engage with people who are not feeling confident about how we're using tax dollars. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, let's take a, a question about banking. The pandemic has had a massive impact on every level of the Oregon of Oregon's economy. Tenants, homeowners, businesses, and commercial property owners. The state stepped in early to help protect tenants from eviction and homeowners from foreclosure. They also protected commercial property owners who were losing rental income from both residential and commercial tenants. But large commercial banks fought against, fought hard against these measures to provide foreclosure protection. Uh, how does the treasurer work with banks to ensure that the banks operating in Oregon are working in the best interests of all Oregonians and not just their national or global shareholders?
2: Well, our, our role here um, is as the bank for the state. So um, it's, it's less an advocacy role in that sense, but I think um, you know to an earlier point, to the extent that we are investors uh, in financial institutions um we do have the ability to say uh you know keep keep the long run interest in mind here too uh and i think there are you know there like any group, there are differences of opinions within the financial services industry and, and banking. Um, and I think the we're gonna see as, as things continue, um, the smart financial institutions are gonna find out ways to meet those needs, um, to help uh, tenants, to help uh, landlords uh, make it through this. There's, there's reason um, to be optimistic as, as things continue to improve on the uh, on the vaccine front and on the economy front um, that we're going to get through it. And hopefully um, it won't be too long before we're looking back at this thing. That was painful and and difficult, uh, but we're through it at this point.
1: Okay, this was an interesting question to me. Um, In the New York Times this morning, an article on wealth inequality covered the impact of setting up savings accounts at birth. Um, How the impact that that can have on addressing wealth inequality as a form of reparations. They say, and I'm quoting now from the article, "We have very clear, we have very clear evidence that if we create an account of birth for everyone and provide a little more resources to people at the bottom, then all these babies accumulate assets." Um, so what are the opportunities to create accounts? I know you've thought long and hard about savings plans and creating accounts for people, um, but what would it take to do this in Oregon and how could we make progress on some kind of solution like that?
2: I love this question um, and, and you'll have to cut me off if I go on too long about it because this definitely uh, hits it at one of my passions. Um, I think people might've heard the, the somewhat apocryphal story about Albert Einstein being asked what the most powerful force in the universe was. I don't know if it's true, but the story goes that he said compound interest, uh, and this is a good example of of why that's true. Um, Senator Booker is among the more prominent uh, proponents of this, and I think he's got something. Um, Our own Senator Wyden, who's now Chair of the Finance Committee, has his version of it, and we're in regular uh, communication with them about how that might play out and whether Oregon might uh, play a prominent role. In the meantime, we have some really exciting things going on in Oregon that are uh, a little more modest than I would like, but but significant nonetheless. College Savings Plan is one example of this. Um, And we i've been frustrated for a long time that not enough people use the college savings plan so we did some research to figure out why this is it turns out of course that, that most of the people who historically have have used the college savings plan are affluent white folks from, from the metro area and when we asked why that was there was at least two elements one is lack of knowledge well we we have some ideas about how we can do that. The other was that the tax incentive that's part of the college savings plan was not relevant for people, uh, for many people. It was a tax deduction. And if you're fortunate to be amongst the people who um, itemize their deductions, that would work fine, but that's an increasingly small number of people. So we went to the legislature and changed it to a refundable tax credit, which means that it's accessible and useful to everybody, no matter their income level. So that if you make a contribution to a college savings plan, you'll get that money back either in a smaller tax bill or a larger tax refund. So it's much like the political tax credit that that some people are uh, are familiar with. We went further. We made it progressive. So that credit is dollar for dollar for the lowest income Oregonians. And as a person's income increases, that benefit goes down so that we can target it at people who who really need that, that help. And the last piece on this specific one where I I would love people's help uh, is to publicize um, an effort we've made to, to get people started early on. We started something called Baby Grad. So if you open a college savings account for an Oregon born baby before their first birthday, we'll put $25 in that account, full stop. That is an enormously powerful thing to help people get started. And we had such success with it that we extended it uh, to the the, uh, easily understood kindergarten. So same deal for a kindergartner who doesn't yet have an account, we'll make that same $25 seed deposit. All of this matters because having an account makes a huge difference in a a young person's uh, likelihood to pursue education after high school. They're three times as likely to go to college and four times as likely to graduate. Of course, these accounts also work at community colleges and trade schools and apprenticeship programs. So it's a little more narrow uh, than what Senator Booker and Senator Wyden and others are talking about. But it's a it's it's a further piece of evidence of how effective that is. And whenever there's an opportunity, um, I put me at the front of that line to try and help um, get people started on the on the savings path.
1: Yeah, well, talking about the power of compounding. Um, Actually, we have a question coming in that says, too few, and this is, I think, right in line with what you've done a lot of thinking about, but too few Oregonians have retirement accounts. Uh, The PERS portfolio investment strategy has been strong, but the fund suffers from not enough, and I'm not sure, let me continue reading. But the fund suffers from not enough money investment in it. Why can't we offer PERS to more Oregonians as a strategy to strengthen the fund and provide access to retirement to more people?
2: Well, the, the, the basis of that question, I think, is, is rooted in something really important, which is getting more people access um, to, to retirement savings. And and there are a variety of specific legal limitations that we don't need to get into here, but it does speak to that mission of, of addressing the, the the big hole across the country that about half of people who are working don't have a retirement savings plan at work. And that's, I'm really proud of the fact that Oregon was the first state in the country to take that on directly. Um, We just celebrated a pretty big milestone in our program called Oregon Saves, which works as an opt out IRA. So if you're an employer in Oregon and you don't offer a retirement plan, you are obligated to facilitate Oregon saves. What that means is you say to your employees, unless you tell me otherwise, 5% of your wages are going into your IRA. The employee can can opt out, they could change that number to whatever they want, but most people stay in at some level. And we're just about to come up on our four year uh, anniversary of getting that program started. We're over 100,000 uh, funded IRAs now, and just this last week we crossed the $100 million mark. It's, that's not enough for people to retire on yet, but it's a really important step um, as people get on a, a path to um, to financial autonomy, and and I get excited particularly when I think about those young people who are just getting started in their career and getting in that habit of savings because they're going to have choices as they advance in their careers.
1: Absolutely, if you you do that when you're young, it's amazing the power that 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 it has. Right. And day you open your, you know, you open up the the account and realize how much is in there. And it's uh, such a pleasant surprise if you haven't been yes. paying attention to it for
2: a while. Um, yeah. We want to find interest at people's backs, not not holding them back.
1: Exactly. OK, I think I have time for one last question, and that's going to be a little bit of a more tough one. Um, the treasurer manages the investments in retirement accounts for Oregon school teachers, firefighters, and other public employees. As the federal government is making record investments in state and local government infrastructure, could you see payments into struggling retirement systems as a form of infrastructure investment and a way to protect schools and local communities from the impacts of failures to fully fund these accounts um, in the past?
2: That's a really interesting question. I, I think I will leave it to others to say whether the, it fits the strict definition of infrastructure, but I will say with confidence, and I'm, I'm sure um, uh, Investment Council Member in and you will agree with me, that the Treasury team is very good at investing, and were the legislature to decide to send some of that money uh, to Treasury, we could make it grow over time and continue to pay dividends for the entire state, because as we talked about earlier, um, uh, A dollar that that Treasury earns in investments is a dollar that doesn't have to come from somewhere else in the the budget. So um, I think think we could have something to talk about.
1: Okay. I think we have like one minute left and a great question just came in. Um, So I'm going to try. You shared that you have uh, staff addressing environmental issues. And can you share how constituents, particularly those of us in the African-American community, can get information on how our state is in addressing environmental justice and investments that will improve instead of harm our environment.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Check out our our website, uh, the Treasury. Uh, Feel free to email us. We can uh, point you in in as much specific uh, direction as we can. Uh, We try to make that information as easily but it is, um, it's is—it's our intention to make it useful for people. So happy to be in touch with you about it.
1: All right, well, thank you so much. I'm gonna to try to sneak in more questions now because I think we are at our time. Um, but thank you, Treasure Reed, for all of your time today. And thanks again to Ka- Caitlin Baggett for bringing us together and to the City Club of Portland for hosting us. Um, so I hope you all have a good afternoon and enjoy the sunshine.
2: Thanks, Monica. Thanks, everyone.